Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. If it's not flooding here in the Pacific Northwest, it's the mudslides after, or the summer smoke from wildfires in central Washington or B.C. Of course, there's the severe earthquake we've been warned will happen before long, or the more mundane complications of capitalism, such as unaffordable housing, inflation, or sprawl. May you live in interesting times, is the Chinese curse. Patrick Mazza is tracking crises and our responses to them with the zeal of a bioregionalist, the skill of a journalist, and the insight of a scholar. He's the driving force behind The Raven, an online journal which exists, quote, to inform the people power movements crucial to addressing the crises coming upon us at national and global levels from increasing national divisions and breakdowns of institutions to the climate crisis. Patrick writes that he offers his insights and seeks out the best voices from emerging movements and highlights books new and old that help us navigate through the coming years. A disclaimer here, I'm a paid subscriber to The Raven. Patrick, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Good to have you here. Tell us about your background and your decision to start The Raven. Well, let's see. I'm a long-term, I started as a straight journalist uh, back in the late 70s and quickly realized that that would, you know, limit me and, you know, the, the whole framing that it would take. I just could not be objective. You know, I actually had, you know, a very interesting kind of land-based experience very early where I was the Okanagan County Bureau Chief for the Wenatchee World from 79, 79 to 81. And there were people in grassroots movements then doing work like the, the Native tribes were fighting a, a mountaintop removal from a little bit of mine. Uh, the... Um, uh, people in the Metau Valley, uh, which is right on the on the uh, east slope of the Cascades, were fighting a ski resort. There's some of the early fights going on uh, about logging in the forest, and so I could see this potential. You know, I could see this potential for for people power movements. And then Reagan got elected, and I kind of knew it would be screwed from there, and uh, I wasn't wrong. Uh, it's been kind of a 40-plus-year downward spiral since then. So I moved into more progressive activism and journalism, wound up in Portland, edited and wrote for the Portland Alliance newspaper, which was the house organ of the direct action movement. So, you you know, this wound up mid-'80s. Um, you wind up in, in historical times, which you realize later how how profound they were. So um, uh, there were people uh, standing in front of bomb trains going to uh, the Trident base at Bangor. And there was the, the um, Northwest Forest Direct Action Movement. And, and my house, the Portland Alliance House in Southeast Portland, was also an organizing center for that. So a lot of that got organized off my kitchen table. And you know, and the you know it was kind of the Earth First crash pad there, and so from there I you know I, I continued in a career of fairly independent journalism and activism. Actually, wrote for several years for the African American newspaper in Portland, the Scanner, and 
and then uh, had a very early website, Cascadia Planet, which went live in 1994, which was all about basically, you know, then, you know, even then you could see our global sustainability crisis coming. I mean, the, the awareness of climate had come in. I'd been aware of it, you know, since the 80s. And just, you know, the, just the overall, you know, the overall difficulties we were facing. So Cascadia Planet was a lot about looking at what we could do, how to kind of achieve global sustainability from the grassroots up, from the bioregion up. And of course, Cascadia was in the bioregional realm you know, about, you know, different ways of relating to the land. Went on from there to, to help uh, to co-found an organization devoted to climate and worked, uh, worked at that for, for any number of years, for many years. For, um, and, um, you know, moved more from journalism into writing kind of high-level research papers uh, on any number of, uh, any number of topics, uh, solutions to the, uh, to the climate crisis and then since about since um since 2013 i've been again you know back to a more independent realm you know i i did relaunch cascadia planet and did that for a while i was i've been active um you know i returned to my direct action roots was uh part of the delta five action in 2014 September 2014, where we put a tripod in front of an oil train at BNSF Delta Yard. And two years later, we were able to argue the first necessity defense for a climate civil disobedience action in, in a U.S. courtroom. And that necessity defense is basically saying, you know, admitting, yes, we, we broke the law, but it was to avert a greater harm. And unfortunately, the judge did not let the, uh, did not let the, uh, the jury considered the necessity defense. They told us afterwards if they had been allowed to, we would have been let off. And then, you know, about, oh, I basically, uh, you know, continued to do different different writing projects, still, still in that, you know, kind of policy paper realm. And then, you know, I, I thought, you know, several years back, I thought I, I needed a new venue to um, really encompass the totality of what we face, uh, that really, you know, it's, it's aimed at a, you know, I mean, it's very much informed by my regional experience here in the Northwest Cascadia, but it also is aimed at, a, you know, people around the world. And it, you know, it really, it really is about trying to plot a pathway through what looks like really troubled times, you know, where I'm not looking forward to the next few years, but at the same time, these kind of times open the possibility for fundamental change when the old models break down. And, and a lot of what I'm focusing lately is the idea of we're, we're at a time of profound change and it, it's on a millennial scale. I mean, it really is, you know, it really is the history of civilization going back four or five thousand years where we really have finally arrived at this global civilization the global impasse we and we see it all around and it is you know climate is obviously the poster one of the posters you know for a great global crisis which 
the institutions of the world are not dealing with. Then, you know, we have the, the rise again of great power competition. And, you know, this kind of insane contest, I can't see it in any other way, you know, where in this, you know, this war where neither side feels it can lose. So I don't know where that goes. So I've, I've really oriented the Raven to thinking about alternative form. Where do we begin to take hold again? And it goes back to that idea with which I started the original Cascadia Planet, which is that, you know, here where we live is the place where we have the most leverage to take action. Yeah, you were a very early bioregionalist in Cascadia. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know David McCloskey, mm-hmm. who's the main man responsible for the notion of Cascadia. But you're, you're talking about a bioregionalist in the 70s and 80s when... Uh, Peter Berg was essentially coining it, or, or, or right. if not coining it, being the main person behind it. So how did you come to the realization that bioregionalism makes sense and that calling it Cascadia makes sense? Well, let's see. I would, I would date my, date my uh, you know, awareness of bioregionalism to the 80s, to the Portland Alliance newspaper, uh, to participation in the, in the ancient forest movement. And also, you know, early early work, you know, I I was inspired by Peter's work and I, I wrote for a number of years a Green City column for Portland Alliance, participated in a uh, community brainstorm on how to make Portland a green city. You know, I read Ecotopia. I, I came to the Northwest in, in uh, 1978. I read Ecotopia shortly after that and it was inspiring, you know, I wasn't, you know, obviously it's, it has a lot of troubled concepts, but, but misogyny being one of them. Yeah. You know, even though it was ruled by women, but yeah, but you know, use nuclear power and, you know, there's, there's troubled concepts in there, but it, it inspired me with the idea of, you know, of, of working on the ecological from the ground up and, and also, you know, I mean, it was, there, there is some, some thought that we passed the sustainability threshold sometime in the early 80s, where we really did go into global overshoot. People who've done work on overshoot and ecological footprints kind of point to that time. And, and, and I, again, I could see that, you know, this was the 80s and it wasn't, you know, it was the Reagan era and we weren't getting stuff done at the, at the national level. And whereas, you know, it was at this, at this level here where we were, where we were out in the woods, standing in front of logging trucks. We were in cities, you know, looking for ways to make them greener. It was obvious, you know, when we were doing the Green City Vision for Portland in 80, it was probably, what was that, 1991, that, you know, this was this was a critical place to deal with, with the global, what we called global warming then. You know, it was a critical place to deal with the issue. Um, so it just, you know, it just made sense. It also, you know, there, there's the, the thought of bioregionalism that we, we connect with, with, the, with our world through where we are, you know, that, that, that we gain a resonance with nature, you know, that, we, be, that we, we become part of the nature surrounding us. And that, you know, and always, you know, if you're, if you're fighting to save the planet, you know, having the, the kind of visceral stake of hereness uh, really, really helps. And that, that I got from the, 
you know, from the forest defenders. But you can do that by being a Seattleite or being a King County resident or being a Washington resident, but bioregionalism says something a little different than that. What are I mean, one of the examples is that the demarcations ought to be chosen by nature and not yep. by white generals sometimes consulting a map. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our our demarcation lines are, are rather foolish, you know. They're cultural realities, you know, and as, as cultural realities that, that have a history to them, they do have a reality to them. But yeah, it, it, it prevents you from seeing the whole, seeing the function of the whole. You know, so, you know, the 49th parallel between us and Canada, you know, is, is obviously, an, you know, the cultural differences are real. The nature is obviously the same. And, and it's clear that, you know, people in Seattle and Vancouver have more in common than people in, say, Seattle and Houston. So there are some, there are some common cultural realities. Um, and, you know, Cascadia, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a chosen name. And it, you know, where where David got it, you know, is from the, the cascades of the waters, you know, and and this region is so much defined, by the waters flowing through it, um, you know, by the the way the, um, the mountains catch the, catch the um, clouds from the Pacific and, become rain catchers and feed the whole the whole ecosystem. Um, you know, and really that, you know, and, and, you know, and then you have the evapotranspiration from the forest, feeding it farther. And so the idea there's, there's this integrated something called Cascadia that, that, you know, that really embodies the, the Columbia snake watershed, you know, and goes back to the, you know, goes, goes to the, to the Rockies. I mean, it, it, it feels like a reality. I, I recall, you know, just driving, you know, back across the Continental Divide one day in Montana and just the feel, you know, from one side to the other and saying, yeah, the green of it, you know, the, the wetness of it. Yeah, it said, yeah, I feel like I'm back in Cascadia. Yeah. Your latest posts are about Lewis Mumford's yes. thoughts on the regional framework of civilization. Why reclaiming the regional scale is vital to address the multiple crises the world now faces. Um, you're very much inspired by him. Yeah, Mumford has been an inspiration for a long time. And, you know, Mumford was not strictly a bioregionalist. At some point, I'm going to write to try and clarify regionalism, bioregionalism. He was kind of a humanist regionalist, you know, who saw life organizing around, you know, the city. It's, 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 communities around it up to the the height of the watershed that supplied the water he and people he worked with you know they were you know he he started writing in the 20s and 30s and people he worked with you know who worked on the idea of regional planning had a had a whole different idea about how this society could grow you could see the suburban sprawl coming then uh, he had picked up the idea first espoused by Ebenezer Howard of garden cities about of instead of having utter you know formless blobs of sprawl, having distinct communities of thirty thousand or so where you know had everything you needed the schools the housing the diversity and 
and and would be you know separated by green belts, connected by fast transportation, fast public transportation, and you know different different places would specialize. You know, one place might have the regional hospital, one place might have the regional symphony. He called that the social, the social city. Unfortunately, we've we've passed. You know, we've so created the metropolitan blobs that uh, Mumford feared would would come. Their formlessness and you know, really, you know, kind of the decenteredness of living. And so we're, we have a long process in kind of bringing form back to the suburbs. And that's going to be an important thing to, to move away from dependence on the car. But, you know, Mumford had the idea that really, you know, the dynamism in um, civilizations was rooted in place. So he, you know, he, he had, yes, yeah, so he said regions that regions are the framework of civilization and the rise of the nation state and capitalism really beginning, you know, 13th, 13th, 14th century, really obscured that reality and, and kind of created these mono institutions, the nation state, which were as, you know, as, as they've been called imagined communities, which very much are, you know, and as he, as he nailed it, you know, so much of the creation the cultural creations of the capital city that are just kind of pushed on the entire. And so really in our, in the U.S., you see, uh, it's astounding to me how much the, uh, you know, how much of the national sense of itself is conceived in just a few, a few cities, you know, New York, Washington, L.A., you know, and now we've got the tech centers coming up here in Seattle and in San Francisco, but but all the you know the how much of the heartland is marginalized in this creation of, and and how much, you know could can we get back a more a more balanced development that is not so centralized, uh, that that is more diversified, and you know unfortunately we might get there through collapse and through breakdown. By no means I'm telling, saying to abandon national politics or, or the the, pol- the conventional politics. I mean, we, you know, working at the regional and local scale, we have to work through the state and local governments. There are effective regional governments, whatever, you know, even even if they're ineffective at that. But, you know, looking at what we face, we really need to consider how we rebuild you know, how we rebuild a life that doesn't, um, that doesn't shatter the planet, that doesn't drive us to war. And the idea of building in place, place, you know, having endlessly expanding nation states, endlessly expanding corporations, you know, that diverts us from what we need to understand. We need to understand there are limits. And we've crossed those lines. Looking at the framework of your life in a regional or bioregional sense teaches us that's you know it, it orients us to to living in that that framework of limits, which can be a rich life. Yeah. But it but it is you know but it we have to acknowledge planetary realities. Mumford's uh, garden cities sound a lot like. Peter Berg's 
a green city program. Yes, they do. You saw this book on the table and you thought, I remember this from back in the day. Yeah, I remember that from, you know, it came into the Portland Alliance as, um, you know, and I, I was even on a, on a panel with Peter, you know, a couple of years later. Um, yeah, and, and so, yeah, very familiar with, with that work. So what's the similarity between Garden Cities and a green city program as Peter Berg would have it? Boy, it's been a long time since I looked at a green city program. Well, um, taking the cars out is probably right up there. That, oh, yeah. And you already expressed many of the things. Uh, you know, I'm thinking there's a lot of similarity between th- what they were talking about and the 15-minute neighborhood. That is an idea. Certainly. Yeah, tell us about what you see in that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, you know the, the ideas, you know, that were just starting to come up when when Planet Drum published Green City Vision, when... Peter and Judy Goldhalf, you know, Judy had, you know, Judy doesn't get enough credit, but, you know, she was very important in that. And continues to be. Yes, yes, she is. She's still, she's still at it. Peter has unfortunately passed. But, yeah, so we're, you know, but those ideas which go into the tending new urbanism or, you know, the, the, those ideas were, were beginning to crystallize around, around around 1990. There was a... A seminal conference in Berkeley, the Berkeley Eco City Conference, where a lot of the main main players came together. So you had the idea of, you know, the uh, you know Peter Calthorpe's idea of transit oriented development. You had Andres Duani talking about neo traditional design. You had critiques coming in at that time about, and it and it seems to have you know, been valid about it, it didn't take account of the class issues, which, you know, parenthetically, you know, here we're, we're in Rainier Valley here right now in, in South Seattle, where a light rail line came through and, and uh, has been regarded as a, as a gentrification machine. So, so I think, you know, these, but the, you, you asked about the 15 minute neighborhood. Yes. The idea of recreating centers within our cities and bringing back some green to those areas. So beginning to repair the damage done, you know, and, you know, and one thing Mumford said in his books, once you've oriented planning in the city to wield traffic, you've lost it. And that's, you know, and that's our, you know, that's, you know, but we, we've surrendered our cities to the automobile. And that's and the only way we can we can get get that back is by creating centers, fifteen minute neighborhoods where you know de- defining it. I don't don't think we've defined it. It's basically a, where you can go out and walk, and in fifteen minutes get to where you work, where you shop, where you your third place, where you have a drink or you know get together with friends, school, um, good coffee. Good coffee, yes, yes. Fifteen minute walk or bus ride, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I guess it's, I guess bus ride is included. Yes, yeah. is included in that. You know, another thing about Mumford that you write is that he was opposed to this notion of the pioneer as yes. rugged individual. You combine the rugged individual with no recognition of limits, and you have destruction of biospheres. Pretty, pretty simple yeah. formula, it seems. Yeah, that's our, but, and that's been our history. You know, as I as I wrote, when Mumford was decrying the pioneer, you know, he was st- that the pioneer was still a hero figure. 
you know, he was he was actually writing that when Frederick Jackson Turner was still alive, the man who wrote the, the, the significance of the frontier in American history, who said, you know, who basically said that the frontier had shaped us, our tradition of democratic individualism and opportunity. And the flip side of that is irresponsibility, what Mumford called land skin, skinning, you know, and the history of the homesteaders moving on after they exhausted the soil. I mean, it, it, it really, you know, it, it really became quite evident in the 1930s with the Dust Bowl. But yeah, that's our, you know, that our, our heritage has been oriented around individual opportunity, moving on. So, you, you know, you have the whole, the whole culture of the kind of the cosmopolitan, placeless professional, you know, moving, you know, we've been there, you know, moving from one city to another, not really having a, a commitment to any one place, but to career. You know, you have the, you know, the, you know, the, obviously the, the clear cutter, <laughs> you know, and the, the way that, you know, Cascadia was certainly settled in the pioneer ethos. Mm-hmm. So you had the, the city we live in used to be an ancient forest we skinned, we literally skinned this land. And, you, you know, what, you know, 5% of the, of the original forests left. So, so yes, you know, Mumford had that one nailed. And, and now we're a little more nuanced about the pioneer. We realize, you know, that was theft of native land and, and a lot of environmental destruction. So we know a little bit better now. Yeah. The bioregionalists said 40, 50 years ago that we live on this planet, in this bioregion, in the city as invaders. Yeah. And that's exact. And you know, this notion of what you just explained mm-hmm. if you spoil it enough where you can't live well there, just move somewhere else. Right. That's what an invader does. Yes. Yeah. And that's still the ethos today. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, and it, and that's, that's, you know, why we're reaching this this impasse we're running out of places we're running out of places to move on to uh, we're running out of you know we're running out of easy free natural resources to exploit so we you know so it you know so instead of you know just pumping the oil up from the ground you know now now we frack it we we insert chemicals and and uh water into the into the ground to break it up still in the northwest you know we're still cutting down great old trees uh, especially up in canada there's been a huge return to the forest wars up up on vancouver island as you're you're aware so yeah we're we're still at it what's going to stop this you know what's going to what's going to divert us from this path because we're clearly, we're going down a dead end road here. One thing, one thing or another, you know. If we, I have to say, I'm kind of disheartened because this was the decade we were supposed to be getting at a Green New Deal or a new World War II for climate. Instead, it looks like we've got the new World War Three. You know, we're you know, and and with all the, you know, through the with all this empowerment of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, so, okay, so we can't buy Russian oil, so, oh, we're opening up public lands to, to 
oil and gas exploration. I mean, it, that's, that's kind of the backwards, you know, very backwards. So, so I, 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 I mean, I've got to, I've got to go back to, to my basics. We need a lot more people power in the game. You know, we need people power to, to, to stop things. We also need to start things. And, and that again goes to the regional or bioregional framework where we, you know, we, we can do that as people with, you know, not all of us have a great deal of resources and, but we can begin to build in place. There has to be a critical mass that stops buying into when we spoil this place, we can, or if it gets too expensive here, we can move to Cleveland or Houston or whatever. There has to be a critical mass that says, I'm committed to here with the same kind of passion that people in Ukraine are committed to defending their homeland. I think that's the level it's going to take. One other thought about Mumford is that he early on saw the dangers of specialization. Yes. And I think that's an interesting point to discuss. I mean, that was part of why you saw the value in bioriginalism, because you were looking at a whole. But you yeah. don't look at a whole when you're a specialist. Yeah. You look at the parts. That's right. right. Yeah. David McCloskey talks about this, but you know, about how our bureaucracies are shaped just that way, you know, that that we we don't we don't have the vision of the whole. And you know, we live in a you know what's William Catton, I believe wrote the book Overshoot, a classic book about us overshooting. And a later book he wrote was about specialization. Overspecialization was actually getting in the way of us solving problems. Sets up all kinds of barriers between fields and competition between different fields. So nobody can really grapple with the situation as a whole. There are, you know, there are, there are efforts to overcome that. Science has something called the integrated assessment, which tries to bring specialists together. Mumford had this idea of, and I, I consider it fascinating, of, of reorienting education to the bioregional landscape and making education a lot more, what I get, you know, a lot more in the field, you know, a lot more in the experience of the, of the place you know, and doing surveys of the whole place and, and people getting that concept into their head of where they live instead of all these abstractions. You know, the decline of, of education into, you know, even at its highest levels into career, career seeking, you know, and, and, you know and, and, you know, again, it gets back to that, you know, our society is, is oriented toward individual achievement and, and not toward the creation of communities. So, you know, so I, I thought that was, you know, just breaking through the barriers of specialization. That, and it's difficult because specialization is what gives people power and money in the society. I mean, in so many ways, the incentive structure is, is skewed. The generalist is not, you know, is, is not the, you know, is often not the one in demand, but the one who has this very narrow, very narrow focus. I mean, one of the reasons I originally went into journalism was because I could be a generalist. You know, I, I could try and, and look at, at things in a, in, in somewhat of a whole perspective. 
you know, kind of an ecosystemic perspective. And I think that's why I've oriented toward the, you know, toward regionalism, bioregionalism um, through my career. My career. <laughs> there, there's a... Um... There's a notion by Mumford that he got from Thomas Aquinas, and it was the notion of artificial wealth. Yeah, I'd love it if you elaborated on that notion and maybe tie it in to what we have here with mm. with uh, Bezos and Bill Gates and other billionaires. Right. The eighth most uh, wealthy city in the world, Seattle, something like that. Yeah, it's a, it's astounding. You know, it's astounding. And you know, I, I mean, it's a city with uh, depending on where I look at the. Uh, Bloomberg Billionaires Index, which is, you know, web tool to, you know, to measure the, da- you know, the daily net worth of the different top people. And, uh, you know, by different counts, we've had two or three of the world's top nine, you know, uh, Gates, Bezos and Steve Ballmer, the guy who reputedly failed as the Microsoft CEO and probably is the one of the world's best examples of failing up you know he's slightly below the hundred billion you know and he was 96 billion the last I checked but yeah you think, know think I'll be think I'll buy me a football team yeah, is what Pink Floyd saying but he bought a basketball team <laughs> I know I know so yes you have you have wealth denominated in uh, in zeros in computers and and you you have a system of, of artificial seeking these you know, artificial representations of wealth, which can be converted, obviously, into real, real physical wealth. But, you know, I mean, when you, when somebody can lose, you know, 15 billion in a day, I don't know, Musk just lost 15, I mean, what's real about that? You know, what's real about any, any of the financialized wealth we have? And it, you know what's what's real wealth is is you know is productive capacities you know it's and it's you know it's 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 the capacities of of nature you know of our technologies you know of people to to produce and so yeah you know so will you know will a lot of this artificiality be washed away who can tell one of the lessons we learned in the pandemic was that, uh, you know, there is no predictability. There's the illusion of predictability. Yes. But that was just something we believed in until something came along where that was shattered. Mm-hmm. And um, when you have a specialist's point of view, yeah. it makes it very difficult to respond to crises because yeah. all bets are off. So how does one prepare how does one individual prepare mm-hmm. for a time in which you can't bet on certain things happening the way we've we've expected them to happen for a long time? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's the great question. I I think you know, what obviously first comes to mind is building strong relationships around around us in our community, because um, we we don't know, you know, the whole idea of resilience, you know, of of being able to adapt uh, to to changing circumstances, but yeah, I mean that's isn't that the lesson of Buddhism impermanence that that our our thought of you know that we live in a stable world is is you know it is a delusion. It's an illusion. I mean, you know, I, I 
you know, two minutes from now, the Cascadia subduction zone could, could open up and, and we would just be rocking here, you know, or, you know, asteroid could strike or, you know, we, we don't know. We don't know. And that's, you know, so I, I, I think basically we need to, we need to look to, to create more resilient structures. Now, the whole development of, of kind of neoliberal capitalism over recent decades is exactly the opposite. So some of the early writing I did was actually when uh, the ship, um, the Ever Given, got caught in the Suez Canal. And you had, you know, you, you had all kinds of worry about global supply chain then. Because, you know, because here you have a whole world that's oriented to just in time. You know, that, that's the thought that we, you know, if you cut out the storage, if you cut out the, you know, if you just, just use the whole supply chain as your warehouse, you could save costs. So we came into the, into the pandemic with a lot of the, these hospitals, which are now more, you know, profit-oriented, not having adequate stocks on hand because they hadn't prepared. You know, because that would have induced that would have caused extra cost. So I would say, you know, in our in our overall, you know, in our every institutional planning framework, we need to bring the long term back in. People have been starting to say that, you know, especially about the climate, that you don't you don't just just plan for the kind of your your main expectation of, of events. You've got to also plan for what that that marginal. You've got to plan for the worst case scenarios or the unknown unknowns. So I, I think it you know it it really is it really is about getting getting that long term perspective and having some resilience and and adaptability. You know I don't feel particularly ready myself. You know to deal with what's coming. I mean I can think of what I would do, but, you know, again, it's, you know, so I, you know, just try to keep up my community relations and, and, um, expect the unexpected. And, you know, I mean, that's the thing, the, you, the, you know, the unexpected can be, can be good stuff as well as bad stuff. Right. What's it like trying to make an online journal like the Raven go? Well, you know, it's not exactly like the, uh, you know, subscriptions are rolling in. I mean, I'm giving this thing out for free, so please subscribe if you can on the raven.substack.com. But, you know, it's basically I'm, you know, I spend, you know, you know, a day or two a week just thinking about, you know, thinking about what I'm going to write about and, and, and doing the actual writing and putting it out. I'm a pretty fast writer, so... So uh, it's not it's not that difficult, and you know it's it's a you know it's just a process of uh, you know thinking, and you know I like to I actually you know like to use my intuition you know to what's what's going to be hot, and I I uh, I had already planned for this week, and it, it's will be coming out something on the um, you know the uh, little known history of of northern the northern secession how at a time when the South, before the Civil War, really dominated the country, some of the major secession movements were not 
from the South, they were from the North. You know, people wanted to break away from the slave states, which dominated the country. And, and then this Roe thing comes down, you know, and I'm, you know, I think, you know, what if we get into a time when, when not only do are, when not only are the, are the, uh, the right-wing institutions in control of national government ending, ending freedoms, but they're, they're also pushing it on the blue states. You know, if we get, if we get a very radical right-wing regime that, uh, that attempts to impose Christian theocracy on, you know, especially on the coastal states, there's going to be centrifugal tendencies. You know, and I've, I've had this, this gut feeling about this right-wing Supreme Court for some time that it's going to drive us apart. So I, that was a good intuition to have, you know, and I'm ready to put that out and just speculate on those kind of things. The writing in the Raven is brilliant. And Thank you. Your, your response to these questions validates all of that brilliance. And I'm really grateful to have this experience with you. Oh, and I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it greatly. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at CascadiaPoeticsLab.org.